Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 19, July 26th through August 1st, 1861. Last week, the entire episode was spent in recounting the first battle of Manassas, or Bull Run. We have now had our first major battle of the war, the one usually your lists of the Civil War kicks off with. Let's talk a little bit about the significance and the fallout. Obviously, the South was elated that the battle had gone the way it had. The first real test against their enemy had turned out in their favor. There was some criticism, though, that the army did not pursue the northern host as they crawled back toward D.C. demoralized. McDowell admitted the night after the battle that he could not mount a successful defense of the city. Jackson, although the hero of the battle, did not have the voice that he would later in the war. It did not, in fact, have as much weight. He reported he would be able to take the city with a mere 4,000 men. This is significantly less than the amount of men Jubal Early will have when he gets to the outskirts of Washington a couple of years down the road. It should not shock you to know that there probably was no way that the equally green troops of the South could have formed well enough to assault the city. Many figured the war was over now and just headed home. It was not supposed to last long, and now that there was this battle, that would be a safe conclusion for some. The hero of the battle would receive a reward. That's right, Pierre-Gustave Toutant Beauregard was given a promotion. What you say, what about Jackson? It would surprise you to note that, except for a little fame, Stonewall would receive no special recognition for his services. Fairly shocking if you think that he basically saves the Confederates on Henry House Hill, and his brigade fights essentially alone for almost four hours. There is an argument that can be made that this battle would do well for the spirit de corps of the army. That's a fancy way to say morale, by the way. Confederate soldiers would develop the feeling of invincibility when faced with northern foes, something that will go a long way in the campaigns in the east. Just to backtrack a little, July 19th, we would see division in the cabinet and government of Jefferson Davis. Robert Toombs of Georgia had been serving as the Confederate Secretary of State. Before the war, he had been a Unionist, but then switched to a more radical view when faced with abolitionists. Remember, abolitionists were seen as something that would tear the nation apart, a sort of radical sect of this newly formed Republican Party. Toombs was originally seeking to be president of the Confederate States, but would lose to Davis, most likely due to a drinking habit. Oddly enough, Toombs would be the only cabinet member opposed to the firing on Sumter. It was reported, he said to the Confederate president, Mr. President, at this time it is suicide, murder, and will lose us every friend at the North. You will wantonly strike a hornet's nest, which extends from mountain to ocean, and legions now quiet will swarm out and sting us to death. 
It is unnecessary. It puts us in the wrong. It is fatal. Toombs would be a critic of the Confederate government and resign in July of 1861 to seek a military command in the army. The turnover in the Confederate government is fairly impressive. There would be four secretaries of state, three secretaries of the treasury, five secretaries of war, and five different attorney generals. Keep in mind, the war is only four years long. This is in sharp contrast to Lincoln's cabinet, as we have alluded to before. Toombs was more of a political appointment rather than placed into his position based off of his talent. Jefferson Davis, as already mentioned, had selected men from different states to appease them. He was also a micromanager, and no one likes that. This is just an early example of the dysfunction we will see throughout the war, which will hamstring the efforts of the South. The North and their supporters were in a starry state. There was public drunkenness amongst the soldiers returning to the city and general disorder. The cries of on to Richmond faded away from the papers. The attitude of some was downright depressing with themes of how the Union was now dead. The public was shocked, and so was the Lincoln administration. While giving the news to Lincoln, who had assumed the battle was going to be a victory of the defeat, the cabinet was apparently white, not knowing what was really happening. Changes would be needed. The 90-day men were allowed to go home. They would be replaced with men who would have longer enlistment periods. 11,000 men from Pennsylvania who were denied enlistment into the Army were allowed by Simon Cameron to arrive in Washington. They had been deemed surplus to requirements before, but now, after Bull Run, turns out their services would indeed be required. I think another thing that the North will be forced to look at would be leadership. Patterson had failed to hold Johnson in the valley. Tyler had twice failed, first at Blackburn's Ford, and then again in holding Shank Evans into place at the Stone Bridge. Winfield Scott, sad to say, was old and had to be helped onto a horse. No, there would have to be a change if the Union was to be saved. Much in the same way the Esprit de Corps was raised in the South, there would also be a negative effect in the North which will possibly influence the decision-making of higher-level officers, even if they are not of the old breed. Both sides would agree that the war was going to be a long one. That's usually the narrative that we talk about when First Manassas comes up. There were muted celebrations in the South, and obviously the North was batting down the hatches for a much longer conflict. This is true. The South had a muted celebration because they knew they would be larger battles to come, as did the North. Only about 18,000 men on both sides were actually deployed during the battle. If full force was used by both armies, the casualty counts would become much higher, as they would later on in the war. Jefferson Davis would call for 400,000 more volunteers 
after letting the immediate aftermath subside. This would be a new kind of war, with inexperienced troops turned into grizzled veterans in a short time. I have a great account from E. Porter Alexander about the first blood, so to speak. Before going on with my narrative, I want to digress and tell about a curious little idiosyncrasy which was developing itself in both armies and among officers and men under test and stress of battle for the first time. I had already noticed it in reading the newspaper accounts of the little collisions which were beginning to occur in various directions, and had likened it in my mind to the way in which a person lays hold of an iron which he knows is hot, but does not know how hot, whether only uncomfortably warm or hot enough to make the flesh sizzle. He does not grab it promptly with a full strong grip, but picks it up and drops it for a time or two, till he can get the measure of the heat and sees whether he can stand it. Well, this is very much the way that officers and men took hold of fighting at first. This, I think, is a good description of the early fighting of the war. Some testing blows before we get down into a full knockout fight. Colonel Andre Potter also had a good quote. The words, gestures, and threats of our officers were thrown away upon men who had lost all presence of mind and only longed for absence of body. That one sort of goes more toward the new experience of this type of warfare we talked about. Despite the criticism, McDowell could have won the first battle of Bull Run. Erasmus Keyes could have extinguished Jackson's flame before it was even lit, and the rebel army could have been routed just as they were the Union forces were routed. Still, it was a complicated plan for green troops, so someone needs to be the fall guy here. Rest assured, Irvin McDowell fans, he is not done with our story just yet. He is just no longer the head honcho. He would be replaced, but with who? None other than the young Napoleon who will receive the following telegraph message shortly after the battle. Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Charge Rosecrans or some other general with your present department. Come hither without delay. Looks like George B. McClellan is getting the call up to the show. As I have alluded to in previous episodes here, McClellan is one of the more controversial figures of the war. There are those who say he was a bad general, and those who say that assessment is not really fair. I'm going to hold off on giving my opinion just yet. If anything can be said about McClellan, it is that he is a good organizer, though. This is the guy you want to take care of that messy office. That office right now are the Union forces around Washington. Competent commanders will be elevated to higher positions, and incompetent ones would see the exit. The Army of the Potomac, which you pair with the Army of Northern Virginia, is iconic. And it was McClellan's brainchild. It will take a long time, but he will get everything into shape and ready for the campaigns of 1862. Also, of course, that's sort of part of his criticism, is that he took 
too long to get to that point. So uh, just keep that in mind as we move forward here. It will be during the lull in action that McClellan will hatch his Urbana plan, or the Peninsula Campaign. Now George B. is not a fan of the press, and he is not a fan of telling too many people about his plans. This is also one of his criticisms, probably why Edwin Stanton does not like him. As you can imagine, if you are giving a presentation with a partner, and they say, don't worry about it, I got a plan, but you really need that piece in order for the presentation to be successful. That's probably not a recipe for success. We saw how loose lips sunk McDowell's ship last week. Anyway, he will opt against an overland campaign to Richmond. Instead, he will plan for a move up the peninsula, the one we talked about with Big Bethel, and move on the Confederate capital that route. This is sort of where the conflict starts to arise with Abraham Lincoln and McClellan. Lincoln, of course, is criticized by many West Pointers during the war because he does not have a very strong military background, but he does work extremely hard to try to get to that point where he at least understands what's going on and understands basic strategy. And for Lincoln, in his mind, he wants to move forward overland, as they say, so through Virginia, uh, much in the same way that Grant will do in 64. But McClellan sort of poo-poos this idea that it's not a good one. And his idea, of course, is going to be much better because he is you know, the young Napoleon, right? So this is where some of the conflict starts to arise between McClellan and, and Lincoln. There would be some who believed the overland route more practical, but there was a logistical issue of having to cross many rivers. We don't have to worry too much about this right now, just know it's coming. Like I said, with Grant in 64. There is an interesting debate, I will say though, about the proper objective of the war. This would contain two schools of thought. Capture Richmond or destroy the Confederate field army. We can say that for the inspiration that is drawn from Napoleon in his major victories, he absolutely destroys the armies against him, as in there are no longer a viable threat to stand against him, right? This does not happen during the American Civil War, but we see that as the South loses resources and loses cities, they're still kicking until the Army of Northern Virginia is finally truly defeated. And yes, this will happen after Richmond is taken, so technically they're both right, but I think I'm putting the horse before the cart. We will get there, don't worry. Just know that there are two schools of thought as we proceed. I also think it's interesting to sort of understand the Confederate war goals as well. We've sort of alluded to them as we talked about maybe the composition of Jefferson Davis and his administration and their seeking of foreign help. You know, obviously they're going to want to be recognized as their own nation. 
but exactly how to accomplish this is sort of up in the air. They want to protect all their territory against uh, the aggressor, who they see as uh, the federal army, right? But they also want to maybe press the issue a little bit, and the capture of Washington uh, could be seen as a goal, especially in the East, uh, whereas it's like maintain everywhere else, maybe attacking and taking Washington could bring about that change, could change the sort of the opinion of those in the North who were not uh, radicals, uh, as they saw Lincoln and others in his uh, party. Maybe some Northern Democrats would put pressure on a conclusion to the war, right? Well, this is sort of different uh, in terms of capturing Richmond uh, for the Northern armies, but still similar in, in a way. So sort of interesting to also kind of look at the flip side of that. One of the things that McClellan will get to work on right away will be the improved defense of Washington, speaking of that city. Way back during Lincoln's inauguration, there was a smaller effort to fortify the city with barricades and strong points at various locations, but nothing on a larger scale. Being sandwiched in between Virginia and Maryland, as well as having just suffered a defeat at the hands of the rebels, would mean a greater emphasis on more permanent works. Lincoln would become paranoid about the defense of the city. We talked a little bit about his obsession and his insistence that McClellan take care of the Confederate works on Akia Creek, and that sort of ties into his need for protection of the capital. You know, we just mentioned that it could be a war aim of the Confederacy to capture the city, and there had been several instances early on in the conflict where that could have been a real possibility, right? The rail lines in Baltimore were cut uh, by Southern sympathizers. You know, what if there had been a couple thousand Confederate troops in Northern Virginia that could have marched right into the city without this influx of volunteers? So that combined with having had a very large, in fact, the largest, as we mentioned, field army defeated in Northern Virginia, that would be a problem, right? For Lincoln. So he becomes strongly opinionated that the defense of the city needs to be improved. Remember, also, we are not too long off from the British burning Washington in 1814, so this has to be on the mind of Lincoln. He doesn't want to be in the White House when it gets burned down, right? Like Just like the British did. In fact, until the capital was in better defensive hands, a field army would not be moving away on campaign, one of the reasons that McClellan takes a while to move. John G. Barnard of the Corps of Engineers would be tasked with making Washington, D.C. a strong position. Forts would dot in a ring around the city, which included Maryland and Virginia. A total of 68 forts, 93 batteries armed with 800 cannon would be the final result. In addition, think about the logistical effort that would have been needed to coordinate between these defenses. 
even more storehouses and telegraph lines would be added. Engineers, civilians, former slaves, and troops stationed in Washington would be the builders of this ring. Contraband slaves would stream into the city, but it should be mentioned that sometimes these individuals would not be treated particularly well. For instance, a laborer would make $1 or $1.25 per day, whereas a former slave working on the fortifications would be paid 40 cents. Heavy artillery regiments would be placed in these forts and trained with their weapons, ready for the potential southern assault. It was estimated that in order to be sufficiently manned, the forts would need 25,000 infantry and 9,000 trained artillerymen. And this, of course, is a topic for later down the road, but these heavy artillery regiments uh, will be pulled out of Washington uh, by Grant in 64 and 65, so uh, that's where this influx of manpower that he needs comes from, in part. I think it's important to note that Richmond will never have the extensive fortifications or manpower usage that Washington will. This sort of goes for the argument that capturing the nation's capital will go farther than capturing Richmond. It's more symbolic, albeit Richmond's industrial capacity is crucial for the Southern War effort. I think we can go ahead and pause right there. This one may be a little on the short side, but we did have a longer episode last week. We got to get into the aftermath and significance of First Bull Run, so we can close the book on that battle. McClellan has now taken the field command of the Union forces and started the impressive fortifications that will protect the nation's capital. Next week, we will talk about some technology, including the usage of balloons and warfare, and we will also talk about income tax. Yes, I said it, income tax. Finally, and maybe more importantly, we'll have a proper introduction for Kump Sherman. If you like what you hear, please be sure to leave a review, specifically an iTunes review, that would be helpful. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo. Keep in mind, we did post our first Patreon episode, so uh, make sure to check that out if you're interested. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Feedback is also appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, all are welcome. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. 